After last week, um, I just wanted to uh, start with just kind of setting uh, the stage a little bit. Uh, my hope was last week's message would uh, help to communicate or give a legitimate approach to understanding some of the cultural dynamics within especially the issue of women in ministry. That, uh, that we would recognize that it seems that the overall movement of Scripture is that women are given more and more rights and freedoms. That with this understanding, when we take the whole of Scripture together and see what it seems to say, that we would at least, at the very least, be able to recognize that this is not a black and white issue, but it is a gray issue. Unfortunately, many in the Christian evangelical world have made it a black and white issue, but it, it's not. It, there, there's just so many verses and scriptures and pieces that, that seem to say uh, uh, opposing things about women in ministry that it, there's no way we can really come down and say this is a black and white issue, in my opinion. And so I hope that we are at that, at that spot after considering last week's message and, and ready to, okay, let's you know, kind of dive in more specifically to this particular passage before us. would encourage you, if you weren't here last week, that uh, if this intrigues you after the message today, that you would maybe go ahead and, and find uh, my message online from last week. It's at tacreading.info, or it's also on our YouTube uh, page, uh, to, to just go and listen to that, past, that message last week as well as kind of a setup to what we're doing this morning. Uh, so this week, again, we're addressing specifically 1 Corinthians 11. And 1 Corinthians 11, verses 1 to 16, are, again, hotly debated verses. But the reality is, is that they are, there are so many different ways of interpreting these verses that we just have a, a wide spectrum of perspectives on how this passage speaks to women in ministry. And again, that lends us to the reality that we need to take this women in ministry issue a little bit more loosely and not be very dogmatic about it. That, that we have to recognize that there's a lot of diverse opinions and perspectives. Uh, the, there's three specific, and there's a lot more than this, but at least three big issues within this passage that scholars debate about. The first one is the use of the word head. Uh, we'll read the passage in a minute, but you'll get tired of me hear, hearing me say the word head. And you'll, even as I'm reading it, probably get confused about what does that even mean. Because it's used differently throughout. Sometimes Paul uses it very literally, talking about your head. Other times he's using it talking figuratively, symbolically, about leadership, authority, and these kind of things. But there's really difficult to understand when he means the literal head and when he means the figurative head. Another one is whether or not this is actually written to women or whether it's written to wives. The, the, see, the reality is, is the Greek word is there's one word that is used both for women, the word women, and the word wife. And so, you know, scholars have to make a choice of what is he meaning by this. And you look at the context and overall, but even, you know, in our translations today, uh, we have the NIV that translates this word over and over again in this passage as women, whereas the ESV over and over again translates it as wife. So what is that? 
What's going on there? And then the final one that I, I will at least speak to that's kind of a big one is this verse 10. Because of the angels. All scholars say this is the strangest verse of all of these verses, these 16 verses, that are all kind of strange. This one's the strangest. And so what does it mean? How do we understand that? So again, this, this, these 16 verses are difficult for even the most educated scholars to fully understand and figure out what Paul was meaning. And so we need, again, when we have verses like this, we need to approach it with humility. We can't come to conclusions at the end of our understanding and study of this passage and be dogmatic about it and say this is the way and it's clear this is the way and everyone has to believe it this way. There's a lot of verses in the Bible that we can do that on. But this passage is not. We also need to be careful with difficult passages about basing our theological structures or perspectives or methodologies on passages such as this. Yet many people do with this particular passage. We see a whole methodology and theology about women in ministry based mostly on this passage which again is super controversial. Finally, we must, when we face challenges like this and challenging passages like this, we must rely instead on the rest of Scripture to help us to understand what is going on in this passage. That that we would recognize that if we can find principles in other passages that are concrete and clear, and then this passage seems to allude to those, we can then go, okay, yeah, this this passage seems to support this other principle. But we can't generate new perspectives, theological perspectives, that are only based on this passage. Because, again, it's challenging. I have a list, again, of some resources, two books that I mentioned last week that I've been using to help me to understand these passages and also for me to understand this whole overarching issue of women in ministry. First of all, Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals by William Webb, Blue Parakeets by Scott McKnight. Uh, the mess, uh, in, in dealing with 1 Timothy, because we're not going to really go there today in our, our message, but in dealing with 1 Timothy passage in chapter 2 about women being silent and not able to teach, uh, John Stott has a wonderful commentary that kind of deals with some of the things going on there. I encourage you to read that if you ever want to go further. And then I also came across this biblical basis for women's service in the church. This is a long title for a YouTube video by a guy named N.T. Wright who is an amazing biblical scholar uh, who I highly respect and has got a lot of great books out there. I uh, encourage you, if you want, he's, it's about a 50-minute, 50, 50- or 60-minute uh, uh, video of him dealing with this all the way through Scripture, all of the, this whole women issue and, and women in ministry issue. Uh, so I'd encourage you to check that out as well if you'd like to do that. I, I also wanted to mention at the beginning here that uh, you need to understand my journey in this. I, I used to be on the very traditional side of this issue. Um, and, and it wasn't until I was exposed to a couple of these, especially the Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals uh, book, that I began to go, oh, wait a second. Maybe I've got this wrong, or maybe there's something more going on here than I realized. So understand that even when I picked up this book, though, I did not immediately, I'm not, I tend to be a bit critical, especially when I've come to certain conclusions 
I pick up a book that's going to say the opposite of my conclusion, I'm usually going, okay, I'm going to tear this apart. So understand that I didn't come looking, my motivation to, or my movement to this perspective where I am today has been one that's not been driven by culture. It's been driven by, by my study of Scripture and actually coming to Scripture with a, a, a presupposition that women shouldn't be in certain leadership roles and women should be uh, more uh, uh, limited in their ability to interact in the church. That's, that's where I came from. And so I, I feel like I've got to this point honestly, not because of pressure, but because of my honest evaluation of Scripture. And again, this particular book, Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals, was a big part in my journey. All right. So uh, to understand these passages, we need to you know, have some tools at our belt. We need to understand and, and get involved with what's going on. And first of all, we need to understand the textual context of this text. Uh, you know, this, this text was not, is not in a vacuum. A lot of times we like to take these 16 verses, or we do this with Scripture all the time. We take a passage and we pull it out of its context in the Bible, in the book, and in even the Bible itself. And we put it out here in this, like, you know, just like hovering in the air by itself. And then we want to deal with that passage just by itself. But anytime we do that, I would say that we're actually corrupting the meaning and the purpose of that passage. Because every passage of Scripture is in the context of the overall scheme of Scripture, but also the overall scheme of the the book it's in. And so it's important for us to understand what is going on in the text before we get to this passage and what is going on before or after this passage so that we can then understand this particular passage in the context of the book of what Paul is talking about. Last week's message was about giving you the context of the whole Scripture what seems to be the whole movement of Scripture, so that we can see this passage within the context of the overall book called the Bible. So addressing uh, here in the context of this, pa- uh, this book, we need to understand, and we've, I've preached this, all right? For, we've been going through 1 Corinthians, so I've preached this many times, that, that Paul is addressing over and over again freedoms that the Corinthians were flaunting or using in front of others that were causing all kinds of issues. But in all of his addressing of these different freedoms that the Christians were living out, sometimes it was women, sometimes it was men, sometimes it was both, they were just, you know, they were acting out in different ways. But in all of those ways, all those freedoms, never once does Paul say, you don't have that freedom. Over and over again, Paul addresses the freedom, not to say, hey, this is a freedom that you should not be living out, but to say, yes, you have that freedom, but we need to be careful with these freedoms and understand the purposes of these freedoms. And they're not meant to just be lived out blindly or without consideration of others. We see this in the, the freedom, the, some of the perspectives he gives to freedom. First of all, is that it's not just for their personal benefit. In chapter 6, verse 7, it's talking about the lawsuits. And Paul's like, why not rather be cheated? This is not about defending your freedom to defend your rights. This is a body of believers. Let's get together. Let's enjoy each other. Let's not fight among you. Why not just be cheated? Why, why not just let that go? He also says that we, uh, another perspective is that to not to use our freedom to offend other people. 
in chapter 8, verse 9. He says, don't let you, he's talking about meat, sacrifice to idols, and whether you can eat it or not. And he says, don't let your eating of meat be a stumbling block to others who think that eating meat sacrificed to idols is wrong. And so, again, he's limiting the freedoms. He's not saying that they don't have the freedom. He's saying, we're going to limit this and give you a perspective of that freedom because you're abusing that freedom. He goes on uh, later in chapter 9. He says, uh, another perspective, give it up. Give up our freedoms. Be willing to give up our freedoms in order to bring other people to Christ. In 9.20, he says, I made, my slave, I made myself to be a slave to all people in order that I might win some. Right? And then finally, another perspective that freedom of perspective, perspective on freedom, excuse me, is the, the, to not overuse it. In chapter 10, verse 23, not everything is beneficial. Yeah, yeah we have these freedoms. We can do these things, but, you know, overuse of them is not good either. So it's not, you know, not everything is beneficial. Then we come to chapter 11. So this has all happened before we get to chapter 11. In chapter 11, in reality, we have, in chapters 5 through 10, what we see is Paul addressing over and over again freedoms that were impacting their community relationships, how they were getting along as a community. But now we get into chapter 11, and actually chapter 11 is the beginning of a change of, uh, of context. He's dealt with community interactions. Now he's going to deal with worship. When we gather together for worship, let's talk about how that should be done. And again, he is addressing freedoms in the context of worship. Freedoms that are actually disrupting worship. And he will continue this from chapter 11 through chapter 14. In this particular passage, he is addressing men and women who are using their freedoms to disrupt the worship service. So that is the context of this passage. Let me now read the passage to you. And I will be reading out of the ESV. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 to 16. Actually, I'll start with verse 2, 2 to 16. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the tradition even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, women, excuse me, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? 
Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is to her glory. For her hair is given to her for a, cover, for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have, no, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Another helpful tool in understanding this passage is not just the, the context of the passage itself within the book, but also the context within the culture that it's been written. And again, this is last week's message. This is what I spent the whole time understanding the, the, the texts that have been written in the cultural place that they've been written. Again, the reality is, is the Bible is not written to unnamed people of an unnamed people group of uh, not in time. The, the Bible has been written to specific people at a specific time in a specific culture. For us as Bible scholars to understand what Scripture is teaching, we need to understand the culture within which the Scripture was written to. Just a couple of things I want to draw out in the culture at the time. And it, the reality is that we will find, as you will see, that uh, the, the culture at the time that this was written was strikingly similar to our culture today. So women in culture at the time that this, that, that this was written, first of all, Roman consider Roman women. Although, again, as I mentioned last week, the culture at the time oppressed women for the most part. They had very few rights, very few freedoms. They weren't allowed to do hardly anything. But there were a faction of women, in essence, a feministic movement within Rome of, uh, that was trying to push those boundaries and trying to proclaim that women had these rights and should be allowed to have these freedoms. And so they were challenging these women, Roman women, were challenging the authority structures of the day. They were challenging the gender roles of the day. And they were challenging the dress codes of the day. They, they would say that we, they didn't have to submit to their husbands. That they didn't have to stay at the home and just, you know, take care of the kids. That they didn't have to dress modestly or according to cultural norms. And again, like I said, we see this very thing happening today in American culture. A rise of feminism, a, a rise of a sense that women can do these things and, and they shouldn't be limited. They're challenging authority. They're challenging gender roles. They are challenging dress again. They are, they are shooting for egalitarianism. They are shooting, and some are even see, shooting for a, a matriarchal system, <laughs> trying to, to reverse everything. They're saying that they can, women can do all the roles that men do. They're saying that there shouldn't be gender-specific even dress and modesty. I mean, what is modesty? It should be dependent on the individual at the time. At the time of this book was written as well, we see that there was what was going... So the question is, what was going on in the church? What was happening in the Corinthian church at this time, culturally speaking? Again, the Roman Christians at the time, that had created, because of these freedoms, had created a battleground in the church of Corinth. We've seen these battles being expressed throughout. I mean, the lawsuits themselves shows you that there was battles going on. Chapter 7 in this whole passage about uh, women and, and men and marriage and remarriage and all that. I mean, there's obviously conflict in this church. And this issue is one of conflict for them as well. 
in the church, and it, and it stems from this. Christians in the day, especially female Christians in this particular, in this particular case, look at Galatians chapter 3, where it says that there is no slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female. And they recognize, and that's in Christ. And so they have said, oh my gosh, we as women are free to do all of these things. We are free in Christ to be able to have all these freedoms. And so they were pushing that envelope. In the church, women were going to extremes. They were, they were, uh, we already saw this in chapter 7. The abstaining from sexual relations with their husband. Uh, the divorcing. The, they were able to divorce, and so they were taking advantage of that divorce because of their freedoms. They were refusing to remarry or to marry at all at times. They were ignoring, as well, men and their husbands. They were, they were just ignoring the submission rules of the home and just throwing that out. They were dressing down, in a sense, and they were dressing like maybe some of the prostitutes would have in that culture. They were even at times dressing like men because they wanted to say, no, no, I'm free. I have the rights that men have, and I have the freedoms that men have, so I'm going to even just look like a man. On the other side of this issue were, I think, the Jewish Christian men. So they had grown up in the Jewish tradition and understood the perspectives there about authority and, and about dress and these kind of things. And so they were fighting against these Roman Christians who were coming in and these women who were trying to do all these, get, uh, claim all these freedoms. The Jewish men would stand up with their strong tradition and say, no, 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 this is wrong and you shouldn't be doing that. And they were actually covering their heads in worship as was tradition for those who were religious in the Jewish Jewish perspective. And they were demanding that women do the same. Because for human beings to have their uncovered heads before a supreme and powerful and and omniscient God was wrong. We see the same battle happening in the American Christian church. Again, it's a battleground within our Christianity where feminism is attacking church structures. Some are decrying the evilness of men and the patriarchy. They are demanding complete freedom and egalitarianism within the church as well. And then on the other side, you have the traditionalists who are clinging to the patriarchy and the gender roles. Some are decrying the evilness of feminism and demanding patriarchy being being seen as God's law. This is the cultural battleground that's going on in the church at the time that Paul wrote this. And as you can tell, it's happening even today in our church, in our world, in our evangelical and Christian world in America. So with this textual and this cultural context in mind, when we approach this passage to give any kind of perspective of what it is talking about, I think the best word to use is the word perhaps. Not definitely. And so this morning's message, as I continue from here, is just simply to give you some perhaps this may be what's going on. First, perhaps a commendation. One of the passages that is overlooked is verse 2. He says, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the tradition even as I delivered them to you. He starts this with a commendation. 
We read this passage as if Paul is here just correcting them because they've screwed up. We see this passage as if Paul is railing on the women who are exposing themselves in church and saying, no, no, you guys need to get under control. But he starts with a commendation, and then it just continues into this. I would like to suggest that perhaps this whole passage is not about Paul railing against them, but actually Paul celebrating their, their egalitarianism in a sense. The, the, the fact that women and men are worshiping together, even though in the culture around them, that's not, that doesn't happen. Women are always separated. Women don't have the, the rights. Of the, they're always limited. But here in, in the church, they're actually worshiping together that both men and women are both doing this. Praying and prophesying. And so maybe that this is actually a commendation to say, good job, church. There's some good things going on. Interestingly, if you look down at verse 17, Paul says, I can't, I, I, I can't commend you about what, is about what I'm about to say. And then he goes in and rails on the church about how they're doing communion. So perhaps this is a commendation. And what is he commend, uh, commending them for? The context is worship. In verse 5, that women, when they are praying and prophesying, should have their head covered. They, 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 they jump over the, the women who are praying and prophesying in the church, and they jump to the head covering piece. But perhaps Paul is celebrating, again, that women and men are both celebrating here. That they're both worshiping together. Uh, later on in verse 8 and 9, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And then in verse 11, Paul like gives this corrective. He's going both, he's saying, men, you've got this first place, but then he goes on, he says, well, wait a second, men, you don't have it all, because he goes on in verse 11, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. These are radical statements in this culture at this time. So I think Paul here, maybe, perhaps, is actually commending them for their worship practices. And then he's supporting the idea that they actually are having men and women involved in worship together. The next perhaps. Perhaps a qualification. Again, this passage, if we just read it on our own without our presuppositions, I was struck by this. If, if we just put away all our history of how we think that women should behave and interact in church or what their roles are or not their roles, and we just come to it cleanly, I don't think we would say, oh, this passage is, is only about women. We would go, well, it starts with actually men, doesn't it? I mean, now I commend you, and then he goes to verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And then it goes on in verse 4, every man 
who prays and prophesies with his head covered. See, see we've taken this passage, we've made it all about the women. And just totally overlooked the fact that Paul is speaking to the men too. I think, we, I think there's something here. I think we need to recognize that Paul is also calling out the men. There's a commendation here, but there's also instructions. Paul is trying to give them a perspective to limit their freedoms, for them to recognize that those freedoms are limited. But it's not just to women that he's seeking to limit. He's also seeking to limit men, because the men, again, were covering their heads when they shouldn't be. And Paul is saying, what are you doing? When you pray and prophesy, you shouldn't have your head covered. Women, when you pray and prophesy in church, you should have your head covered. There's instructions for both. And the instructions, the qualifications I think he gives to freedom are first of all to be sensitive to authority. In verses 3 and 8 and 9, it's clear that Paul is setting up an authority structure for the family. He, he tells women, he, I mean again, I just, I just read it, but it, it, uh, in verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. Authority structure. So we're not talking about the head. This, uh, my head's Christ. Yay. No, it, we're talking about authority, right? So this is the symbolic piece of head. So the head, the authority uh, is Christ. The head of the authority of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. There's an authority structure. God, Christ, man, woman. And this is, and I, I changed that. God, Christ, husband, wife. There's an authority structure that God has set up. We see the authority structure played out in the Godhead. Philippians chapter 2, Jesus says, even though he was equal with God, he didn't you know, cling to that. He recognized that he came to serve God, to, to do what the Father was telling him to do. And when he's, the night before he gets crucified, he's praying. He says, God, if there's any other way, if this cup can be taken from me and there's some other way that we can do this, then please let that happen. But if not, your will be done. There's an authority structure in the Godhead. God the Father is at the top of that chain. God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But they're also equal. And that same authority structure, I think, has been given to us by God in the family. That the husband is meant to be the head of his wife. The authority structure. But again, there's equality there. It's not that the, he- that the husband is more important. It's not that the husband is better. It's not the, that the husband is more gifted. It's that the head has been given, the, the, the husband has been given the responsibility to be in authority over his family. And so the qualification that Paul is giving, giving here is he's saying to the, these women in the church, whoa, 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 wait a second. Quit, quit destroying your husbands. Quit walking all over your husbands. Quit just, you know, ignoring their, their authority or ignoring their perspective. Would you, would you recognize that there's an authority structure given to us by God? And would you stop disrespecting your husbands? The same thing could be said for the men as well. And again, verses 11 and 12. But man, is, you know, man and woman, they're not independent of one another. We're actually interdependent on one another. We need each other. And so Paul wants to talk to the men as well and says, hey, look at, you know, you can't just, you know, you know be oppressing your wife or abusing your wives in any way. You need to recognize them as equal in Christ. 
I want to just briefly mention this because I can't really get into all of it because there's just too much there. But I don't think, and, and, this, and the reason I mention it is because this passage has over and over again been used as a passage to support the idea that women have to submit to all men. And I just want to say, I, I don't think that that's what this passage is about. I, I really think that this is about husbands and wives and the authority structure of the home, not the authority structure of the church or of the community at large. And, and the reason that I believe that is, again, like I mentioned, just the fact that this understanding of woman or wife in, this, in the translations there's that battle. But more importantly, again, looking at the bulk of Scripture. Now, this passage and 1 Timothy chapter 2, which is a very difficult to understand passage as well, are the only two passages where it may seem that Paul is telling why, women that they have to submit to men in general. All other passages about women submitting, it's always wives submitting to their husbands. Ephesians chapter 5, 1 Peter 3, 1 Corinthians 14, Titus 2. All of those are about wives submitting to their husbands. No other place in Scripture does it say that women should submit to men. And so again, I think if we take a look at the bulk of Scripture, I think we can support a perspective that Paul is focused at least in the authority piece about dealing with husbands and wives, not with just women in general submitting to men. Now, I will say this. In the church, we all, men and women included, are to submit to the elders and the pastors of the church who are set up in that authority structure. And in our alliance, all elders, and lead pastors at least, are men. But it's not a general statement, I don't think. And again, I say that with the perhaps word because there's a lot of debate about that. The other qualification that it seems like uh, Paul is giving here is that we need, they need to be sensitive to the cultural norms. And, uh, in other words, they were creating a stir in their churches because the women and the men were behaving some ways in the church that were out, the outside culture was even going, whoa, what's going on there? And so, uh, and, and especially within dress and how they were, the women were dressing, especially in regards to just kind of, uh, like I say, uh, not wearing head coverings, not being respectful to the husbands, just jumping in and, and taking over services and these kind of things. And so Paul is saying we need to be careful not to be offensive to the culture around us, that our freedoms aren't there just so that we can live them out blindly, again, without uh, paying attention to those around us and how they might be offended by it that our freedoms actually don't trump worship. That we need to actually be willing and ready to limit our freedoms in order to make sure that the focus all goes to God when we're worshiping. Imagine, you know, if, if someone was to come in in our service today, a, a woman in a bikini. The, the stir that that would create and the distraction that that would create. Not that she doesn't have the freedom to wear whatever she wants. But is she doing that to gain the attention and pull the, distract us away from worship of God? And even if that's not her motive, she should be recognizing that, oh my gosh, this is about worship. 
and I don't want to do anything that's going to draw people's attention towards me. I want all the attention to go to God. So perhaps also an instruction that Paul gives in these passages. Two instructions. First of all, that all should participate in the worship of God. Both men and women are praying and prophesying in worship, according to this passage. Again, uh, so often they race past verse 5, where it says that when a woman is praying and prophesying in the service, that they should have their head covered. They just jump past the praying and prophesying part. I think Paul, again, is celebrating the equality within their worship, and he's encouraging them to continue to do that, to continue to allow everyone to have a voice, and I would say even kids to have a voice, teenagers to have a voice, that, that everyone is equal in Christ. We all have a word to say. We all have God's you know, ability to communicate God's truth. Also, uh, another, uh, perhaps uh, another instruction would be for all of us to keep our focus on God. Yet again, that, that w- w- in worship, we're not drawing attention to ourselves. That it's not about me. It's not about me being able to exercise my freedoms. That we're not going to dress provocatively. We're not going to dress genderlessly as well. That we would recognize the customs and the roles of our community and, and our culture and dress appropriately. And that we don't dishonor God or our husbands or our wife. We shouldn't disrespect our spouse by the way we dress or by the way we act in public in the worship service. And that's men, that's husbands or wives. And again, we shouldn't make worship about our freedoms. And we shouldn't make it about maybe our, the restrictions. And really, this, this would be a word... Uh, uh, even though I am a more egalitarian in my perspective of women in ministry, for those women that would go into a church that is much more traditional and patriarchal in their perspective and have much more limits on women, I would encourage those women not to go in and try to break down the walls. That it's not about their freedoms. This is, this is a worship time. Everything is about God. Who are we to come in and start trying to you know, make it be our way? You know, we do this with a lot of things, not just this particular issue, but, but this is not a reason for us to divide over. This is not for a, a reason for us to go, you know, I can't go to that church anymore because they believe differently than I do on that. I, I just don't think, I, I, I get those that may make that separation, but I, that's not, I don't think that's, this is a gray issue. There's reasons to, to, to be divided in understanding of theology, but this I don't think is one. So what's for today, it seems, I think there's, again, this is a difficult passage, so I'm not being dogmatic at all on this. These are some of my perspectives and my thoughts as I come to this passage, and I want to share that with you and get you maybe thinking about it. May the debate continue. But what seems obvious in this passage is that God has ordained a certain authority structure in the home. That is supported by three verses in this passage. It also seems obvious that men and women were both participating in worship equally, praying and prophesying. Also, it seems that it is clear that Paul is saying that freedoms should never trump worship. That we shouldn't try to get our freedoms 
in order to worship. That, you know, oh, well, I can't, I can't worship if I don't get to do the things the way I want to do them. That's not the way it should be. As far as our church, again, let me just say this. The women in ministry issue is, in my opinion, a gray issue. And I know others don't agree with that, but it, it's a gray issue. And so let us, first of all, trust the Alliance leadership, Krishna Missionary Alliance leadership, who they've got a lot of people that are way smarter than me. I know it's hard to believe, isn't it? And and, uh, let's trust that their scholarship and their study of this passage is, is appropriate and that women should be able to be involved in all kinds of ministry, but they can't be an elder of this church and they can't be the lead pastor of this church. Let's trust that and embrace that. But it's also not let this be a reason for us to divide. If you have different opinions, let's have a discussion. Let's debate it. Let's you know, have that conversation. I'm up for it. Let's do it. If, if you don't want to do it with me, do it with other people that you know in the church, right? That's great. But let's not divide over it. Let's recognize that there's just some debate here that we don't know. Next, let's honor each other in worship. Let's be gracious. If someone gets up in, his, in a worship service that you don't maybe think they should be up there, whether it's men or women or maybe someone you think is too young in the faith or whatever, can we just be gracious with one another? It's about God. Can we stop being critical of one another? Let's be gracious and support all, partic- all who are participating and all who are making offerings in worship. But also let's be respectful. Accept the limitations that are there. It's okay that there's some limitations. It's okay. And finally, let's honor God in our worship. It has been my philosophy since I got here, but way before then as well, that this time, this hour and a half that we have together, needs to be totally focused on God. It is not about my preferences. It's not about my, what I like and what I don't like. It's not about, it's not about me. It's about us showing up here together as a group of people and worshiping the one that does matter. How does he want to be worshipped? That is our question. How can I show him my worship? All right, we're about done. And then we're going to go to communion. But I wanted to do one other thing. Um, I'm going to read the passage again. But I'm going to read it in the, uh, the message version. This is... Uh, a basically a, a, not a translation, but a, oh gosh, I can't remember the word for it. Thank you, paraphrase. <laughs> See, you guys should be up here, and you're like, what is this guy doing? You know, you know paraphrase, man, get him out of there. Um, anyway, thank you, thank you for loving me, church, even though I have all these failures, weaknesses. Um, so anyway, paraphrase, which I actually, I just want, just true confessions, I don't like uh, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase from the message. I actually was really disappointed. I was super excited when it was coming out, and then I got it, and I read it, and I was like, oh my God, seriously, this is what you came up with? Uh, anyway, um, but I do refer to it on occasion, and I'm going to refer to it this time, because I think he does a masterful job with this very difficult passage and creates an image of it that I think is more accurate for what maybe Paul might be happening. And now, obviously, there's some interpretation that he's doing because it's a paraphrase, so it's not word for word. But may we just sit back and enjoy this particular version of chapter 11, 
verses 1 to 16. It pleases me that you continue to remember and honor me by keeping up the traditions of the faith I taught you. All actual authority stems from Christ. In a marriage relationship, there is authority from Christ to husband and from husband to wife. The authority of Christ is the authority of God. Any man who speaks with God or about God in a way that shows a lack of respect for the authority of Christ dishonors Christ. In the same way, a wife who speaks with God in a way that shows a lack of respect for the authority of her husband dishonors her husband. Worse, she dishonors herself. An ugly sight, like a woman with her head shaved. This is basically the origin of these customs we have, we have of women wearing head coverings in worship, while men take their hats off. By these some symbolic acts, men and women, who far too often butt heads with each other, submit their heads to the head God. Don't, by the way, read too much into the differences here between men and women. Neither man nor woman can go it alone or claim priority. Man was created first as a beautiful shining reflection of God. That is true. But the head on a woman's body clearly outshines in beauty the head of her, of the head of her head, her husband. The first woman came from man, true. But ever since then, every man comes from a woman. And since virtually everything comes from God anyway, let's quit going through these who's first routines. Don't you agree there is something naturally powerful in the symbolism? A woman, her beautiful hair reminiscent of angels, praying in adoration... A man, his head bared in reverence, praying in submission. I hope you're not going to be argumentative about this. All God's churches see it this way. I don't want you to stand I don't want you standing out as an exception. All right. Uh, worship team, why don't you come forward and we'll transition to um, communion. Uh, Again, this is a difficult passage, and, and, and I don't think anyone should be super dogmatic about their perspectives on this passage, and I hope you, you get that sense from me today. I am not standing up here and saying, thus saith the Lord, this is what this passage means, because I just don't think we can. It's too complex. It's too difficult. There's too many challenges. There's just too many things we don't know, but let us not fear the debate. May we be a church that's open to have these conversations. May we be a church that's not afraid to enter those conversations. May we recognize that the God that we worship is so much bigger than women in ministry issue. That that, that, that is just one small thing in, in the presence of an awesome and powerful God. And so as we come to communion, understand again that this is a table of unity that we can have differing opinions on what this passage means, but we can still be one with each other in Christ. We can still worship the same God. 
We can still fellowship with one another. We can still worship God together. We can still be a family together because everyone knows that in a, you know, a physical, you know, a genetic family, we all have differings of opinions, right? Yet we still call each other family. Let's come before this meal as a family to just once again proclaim our unity in Christ, that we love each other even though maybe we disagree with each other. May we be an example to this world of what it looks like to love each other in disagreement.